Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, please check out our merch store at beyondblathers.square.site and take a look at the animal stickers and postcards we have for sale. And we're doing a special deal until December 25th, where you can get all five of our sticker designs plus all five postcards for just $22 Canadian. Yeah, definitely check it out. Okay, so this week we're going to be talking about the beautiful moon jellyfish. And I don't know, I kind of can't believe that we haven't done a jellyfish yet. Yeah, it seems like a very obvious ocean critter that we would have done. I was a little worried about doing it because there's so much to say about jellyfish. And I'm just really relieved that Animal Crossing was specific about what kind of jellyfish you catch, which is a moon jellyfish. Because otherwise we would have had to like talk about the whole group, which is very diverse and cool and interesting. And there's just so much we could talk about forever. That's cool. Yeah, I feel like I don't know very much about jellyfish, but I'm excited to learn. I feel like every time I hear a cool, like weird animal fact, it's a jellyfish fact. They're just aliens. That's what I've learned from this podcast is that like half of the animals we have are just aliens. I think at this point, I'm starting to just think that humans are really boring and like we just went the easy route with evolution and everything else did way cooler things. (laughs) I'm like, wait, why can't we reproduce asexually? What's up with that? Everything else can apparently, at least according to our, our podcast, because I feel like every species we've covered can do that. Okay, well, let's learn more about the moon jellyfish. So, if you bring one to Blathers, he'll say, Ah, the moon jellyfish. What's not to love about this pretty floating flower of the sea? Well, I suppose its tentacles do give a sting when touched, but it's only a mild thing to the likes of us. Other creatures may not be so fond of this translucent beauty, though who can blame them, really? Moon jellyfish have stinging cells called nidocytes that kill fish and other small critters that float by, and they use their oral arms to pull these morsels into their mouths and stomachs. Indeed, one need but observe the moon jellyfish to see how brutal and beautiful nature can be. That's a really good description. This is this is one of my like favorite ones scientifically. Like I think he does a really good job of it. Very good science communication, Blathers. Really nice. I like the lack of negativity around their stinging behavior. And it is pretty accurate. Yeah, they don't have the strongest sting, which is convenient seeing as they're pretty much like the most abundant jellyfish in the ocean. But before we get into like taxonomy and stuff, we just need to lay down some ground knowledge. Jellyfish, not a fish. It's probably obvious if you look closely at them, they like don't have eyes or like any normal fish body parts. They are from the phylum Snidaria. I feel like I said that wrong. Nidaria? I think it is Snidaria. Snidaria, yeah. So they're part of that phylum and their Latin name is Aurelia Aurita, which I just think is the prettiest Latin name I think I've ever read. Like it reminds me of uh, Aurora Borealis or something. Mm-hmm, yeah. So this group Snidaria includes corals and enemies and a bunch of other things that look like jellyfish but are technically not. They're like in a slightly different group than the true jellies. And those are things like Portuguese man-o'-wars or box jellyfish. So if you've ever heard of those two, they're very stingy. Um, So you've probably heard them in that context. Box jellies are the most venomous 
creature on the planet, I'm pretty sure. Really? Yeah, at least they're, like, the most dangerous jellyfish to humans, and I believe, yeah, they're they're one of those, like, record holders for being incredibly venomous. I definitely thought Portuguese man-o'-wars were jellyfish. I did too, but I guess they're, like, a combination of organisms. They're, like, a little community of creatures, which is really fascinating. I feel like, like, I didn't look into this deeply. My apologies. I'm sure there's really good internet resources on what exactly they are, but I guess it makes sense. They're, like, if you look at a picture of them, they're usually asymmetrical, and jellyfish are radially symmetrical, which means if you, like cut them in half through the middle in any direction they'd be symmetrical yeah i feel like anatomically they aren't quite the same that's giving me real like biology 108 (laughs) the radial symmetry yeah Yeah. (laughs) sorry to bring in some terms i guess we should also clarify that jellyfish are not fish but also taxonomically they're not technically jelly no they are also not jelly although really what is jelly like, are we talking jello jelly or like gelatin? It's a good question. We should maybe mm. have a food scientist on the podcast to discuss that. I feel like this is almost a philosophical question. What is jelly? Yeah. Is it a liquid? Is it a solid? It's definitely solid, actually. It's the fourth state of matter, like plasma. <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of what they look like, the moon jellies, you're probably familiar with them if you live by an ocean. They look a bit like a floating shower cap to me. They're like very round and disc-like. They're about the size of like a small dinner plate. And others say that they look like a flying saucer. Thus, their alternate name is saucer jelly. And they're quite interesting because you can find them throughout most of the world's oceans, from the tropics to pretty far north, they can actually live in some pretty chilly waters. So like they can get down to like six degrees Celsius, which is pretty cold water. They can also be found in waters that have a pretty low salinity, as low as six parts per thousand. So they can live in sort of areas where you've got an intersection between freshwater and saltwater, like at rivers and things like that. So they can survive in a whole range of environments. So you probably have them in your local ocean, if you have a local ocean. And they tend to be pretty clear in coloring with a little bit of like blue or purple coloration. So yeah, definitely keep your eyes out for those. And they have very short tentacles. Overall though, I think jellyfish are so crazy and they make me question all of my preconceptions about what an animal is because they have no bones, no brain, no heart, no blood, and very, very few cells, except for like a thin layer of two cells on the very outside and inner part of their body. So they're just so weird. Like, I I don't know how this animal moves. Yeah. I mean, can you talk a bit about that? Like, how do they do anything without a heart or a brain or like... Are they just passively floating around? Yeah, like, are they plants? So they do have neurons. So I guess they can kind of think, whatever the word think means. But imagine, like, if your brain was split up into, like, little handfuls of tiny neuron spots. So there's no superior neuron spot. They're all just kind of working together. So remember that jellyfish have the tentacles on the bottom and then a top part and that part is called a bell so for jellyfish these neuron packs are located at the base of the bell 
And these neuron packs will have like a simple eye to sort of give them an idea of what's going on around them. They have a little bit that tells them which direction they're floating in, which we're going to talk about a bit later. Those kinds of sensory features are in those neuron packs and all the neurons are communicating with each other to function. They also have a little bit of muscle and that's what helps them to sort of do the jellyfish thing, <laughs> the like undulations, I guess, in the water. That's so interesting. I feel like this is such a philosophical episode because it's like, what are thoughts and what makes something alive? Mm -hmm. it, it makes you have to think about that a little bit harder. I'll think about that more when I see them <laughs> like on Saturna or I feel like you see them a lot washed up on the beach too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they don't have a ton of control of their motor movements beyond kind of moving up and down. So they are a little bit at the whim of the tide so they can get washed up pretty easily mm. now in terms of what they're made of they are mostly water they're like 95 to 98 percent water and as i mentioned before they consist of an outer layer of cells that are extremely thin and they're so thin that oxygen just kind of passes through them so they don't need lungs or a heart or a circulatory system to do all the blood pumping around and making sure all the organs function. And then inside of the skin cells, we have something called mesoglia, and it's mostly made of, out of cartilaginous material. So that also doesn't have any cells in it, which is bonkers to me. Like in my brain, everything that's living is made out of a cell, but that's not necessarily the case. More things I have to think about deeply and I don't, I don't fully understand this, but one day maybe I will. Overall though, the lack of bodily stuff they have makes it so that they don't have to eat that much to function. They've evolved to get pretty big without needing a lot of energy, so it's a really helpful adaptation. And they've actually managed to live through every mass extinction, so Obviously, this body form is extremely efficient. They've been around for like 500 million years. Not necessarily the species we have today, because of course, <laughs> evolution is doing things in that time. But jellyfish in general, that sort of body shape we're familiar with, has been around for 500 million years. Wow. So they're kind of like termites. Like when the world has ended, they'll yeah. probably still be like <laughs> jellyfish and termites. I huh. hope so. And it's interesting, too, the way you describe them, like, the way that their cells are so thin that everything can just pass through them. Like, I feel like if ghosts, ghosts. were real, yeah, <laughs> this is what they'd be like. Maybe they are real. I don't know. So where do jellyfish actually come from? Like, do they, how do they reproduce? Do they have eggs or? So jellyfish are very unique, again, here. They have three life stages. So I'll start by talking about the part of the life stage that we're most familiar with, which is the Medusa. Think of like the Greek character with the snake hair being like tentacles. And so that is the life stage that we usually call the jellyfish. Now on the top of a moon jelly, you'll notice sort of four horseshoe shaped colorful parts inside the bell of the jellyfish. It almost looks like a flower. And those are the gonads of the jellyfish. And they're sort of like the main purpose of this life stage. They're just like floating gonads. And they're going to be re reproducing by releasing sperm into the water column. And a female jelly will take it up and fertilize their eggs internally. And then the eggs are going to be kept on the arms of... <laughs> or the arms by the mouth until they hatch. And those arms are sort of the, the frilly, ribbony tentacle parts. So not 
the hair-like ones that are on the edge of the bell, but sort of the ones near the center. And so there are male and female jellyfish. They're not hermaphroditic? Yeah, yeah. These ones are. I don't know about other jellyfish, but with moon jellies, it seems like there are males and females separately. That's kind of surprising to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm also a bit surprised by it. Now, the second life stage is that larva that emerges from the eggs, and it's going to sort of hang out in the water for a bit. And this larva looks a bit like a floppy bean thing. It's got like a bean shape with little hairs on it, like a moldy bean. And these hairs are called cilia, and they help move it around in the water. So it's really, really tiny, and its main purpose is to look for a good place on the seafloor to settle down and evolve into its next life stage, the polyp. And the polyp is like my favorite part just because of its name. <laughs> I just, I like saying it, polyp. So the polyp kind of looks like an anemone to me. Like it's got a long stalk and these long stringy tentacles on top. So it kind of looks like an anemone, but also like a palm tree. If a palm tree had like really hairy branches instead of broad leaves. But those are really, really tiny too. And they're going to be filter feeding by waving their tentacles through the water and catching any detritus in the water. And this is also a reproductive stage, but in a different way. So this is the part where they can clone themselves if they want. So they can basically bud off into new polyps, kind of like a cell dividing. And that's sort of the cloning part. So they're going to be genetically the same. But they can also do something called strobilate. And this is when the polyp basically morphs into a tube with many plates. So think of, it'll sort of like elongate and separate down the tube. It looks a bit like if you stacked a bunch of daisy flowers on top of one another, so you had like a layering of petals. I'm trying to explain this visually because it's kind of an amazing thing to look at. Like it's very um plant-like when it does this and it'll sort of like be moving as well. So it, it's kind of doing those jellyfish motions, but in these layers of like petals, basically. This is the part where it's becoming baby jellyfish. So eventually these layers of petals, or so I'm calling them, will just sort of break off and float away. And you have these little tiny baby jellyfish just floating around. And these are called Ephyria, which I just, I wanna say whoever named the jellyfish parts, I love it. I love the naming. It's just very uh, theatrical. It's very like fairy-like. So the Ephyria are coming out that way. So in general, the polyp is an asexual reproductive life stage. They're they're just clone them, cloning themselves. And even when they are breaking out into Ephyria, all of those Ephyria are genetically the same as well. So they came from a single organism, the polyp, and that sort of broke off. So it's a really fascinating life stage. And they'll really only develop into Ephyria when they know there's going to be food around. So it usually occurs right before a plankton bloom, and it can be triggered by proteins in the water that are released during a seasonal change. So they're going to do this strategically too. Polyps can live a really, really long time. Like I read somewhere 25 years for a moon jellyfish. So they can be around doing this population dispersal really efficiently. And that's one of the reasons that we have so many jellyfish in the ocean, or at least moon jellies. So they're doing quite well. Well, that's one of the reasons. Yeah, I mean, I remember learning about this and how it's like a, it's like an apple tree where it doesn't really help 
to control the populations if we overfish jellyfish because they can just reproduce asexually from these basically like apple trees Mm -hmm. Um, and the only way to stop them from having these huge population booms would be to somehow get rid of the actual polyps or like the tree part of the apple tree so yeah and it's really hard because the polyps are tiny they're like centimeters tall if that so yeah like that, trying to imagine how you do that and it's literally impossible especially because sometimes they're like hanging upside down on rocks like they're not trying to be super in the way and obvious so yeah but I know there can be a lot of issues with having too many jellyfish and them like clogging things <laughs> in the, I don't know I remember talking like talking about that and just yeah how there's there's almost too many now but I did want to ask you said that the the polyps filter feed is that what the medusas or the kind of regular jellyfishes do too mostly they're kind of just catching things that are in the water so they do eat really small stuff like zooplankton but I haven't read anywhere that defines their eating style as filter feeding at least at the medusa stage perhaps some do But they're also going to be eating bigger things like crustaceans, mollusks, rotifers, sea worms, fish eggs, basically anything small enough for them to collect and to get into their mouth hole. (laughs) So if you look at a moon jellyfish, you'll notice that it's got that frilly tentacle bit that I was talking about before where it had the eggs. That's actually part of the stomach, and it's called the oral arms, and that's made out of gastrodermis, which is skin of the stomach. And so it'll be collecting stuff in there and bringing it up to the mouth hole. So it only has one hole into its body, so it's kind of like a mouth and also an anus, and also where it, like, gets rid of its eggs and stuff. It's just a a multi-purpose hole, (laughs) and so (laughs) that's where all the food goes in. Okay, and does the stinging come into this predation then? Yeah, so that's how they'll capture a lot of their prey is by stinging it until it's like paralyzed or dead, and then they will ingest it, especially for bigger jellyfish. That's like a really important part of what they do because maybe they're eating bigger things like fish. Now, in the case of moon jellyfish, they're going to eat smaller things, but they can still sting. So to kind of go over the process of stinging in jellyfish we can make some generalizations. So their tentacles are covered in stinging cells called nidocytes. And so these are very important to remember because they are the, (laughs) it's kind of one of the most definable parts of a jellyfish. And the way this works is that along the tentacles, there are many capsules and these capsules have venom containing kind of spikes inside. And these capsules are called nematocysts, and each capsule has this hair-like trigger structure poking out. So I think you've got these capsules, a little hair, and when something triggers that hair, the cell bursts open and water forces this little spiky harpoon out. And that's what causes the sting because there's venom inside of the little harpoon. So it's almost like a little trap door, a little Indiana Jones thing, except really, really small. And that's the mechanism causing this pain that you end up feeling. And they're very, very sensitive little hairs. So just brushing against it releases all these little venomous harpoons. 
And what's really cool about this is that this process of the little cells bursting open happens almost instantaneously. So this reaction is just super fast and some have clocked it at like 700 nanoseconds, which is just like unbelievably quickly. And it can do so with 5 million Gs of force, which is crazy. Like these things are tiny. It's an amazing reaction that they've got. And the best part or the worst part, I just think this is like zombie terrifying, is that these cells can continue to fire even after the jellyfish is dead. So that's why you're not supposed to touch a jellyfish that's on the beach because it can still sting you and it can still really hurt. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea that that was how it worked, but it totally makes sense. What should you do if you get stung by a jellyfish? <laughs> I just want to preface this by I'm not a doctor. I don't live near an ocean. I don't know a lot of like cool fancy tricks, but from my research, it looked like one, don't, don't pee on the jellyfish sting. I'm sure everyone's heard this, that you can <laughs> pee on a jellyfish sting and it'll feel better, but apparently it doesn't help. Uh, and I'll explain why in a second. You also shouldn't like rub anything, like don't rub to get the barbs out because basically what happens when you pee on it or you rub it or you wash it with fresh water is that you're just triggering more capsules to open and sting you more. <laughs> so it hurts more. And the reason is because you're just like, when you pee, you're like... <laughs> Like the stream of water or of pee is like more pressure to trigger more hairs. You're rubbing it, you're triggering more hairs. And fresh water, even if you're like gently washing it out and you're not really triggering the hairs, you discharge those capsules because of osmotic force. So there's a change in the salt balance. There's like kind of like sea salt inside. And so those cysts will burst open and continue to sting you. So yeah, don't do any of those things. Instead, try and get any leftover tentacles off of you if you can and rinse it with seawater very, very gently. Vinegar apparently also works, so, but like apply it very gently. But in the case of moon jellies, they don't really sting that bad. Most people just kind of feel like a strong buzzing sensation because their nematocysts can't really penetrate our skin super well. So don't worry too much about moon jellies <laughs> conveniently. That's good to know because I do feel like most of the time... I just see moon jellies around here. Yeah. But I don't know. I've been hearing a lot of stories lately of, like, you told me that your mom was stung by a Portuguese man of war, though, right? Which isn't technically a yeah. um, jellyfish. Yeah, apparently she was. And apparently she wasn't even swimming. And we were all on a family vacation to Hawaii. And she didn't tell us until we were leaving Hawaii because she didn't want us <laughs> to be scared of the water. So. Aww. But apparently, like, a wave washed over her ankle or something, and a man of war just, like, wrapped around it. And apparently those are really painful, unsurprisingly. Its name sounds kind of painful. Yeah. I guess there had just been, like, a, a big tropical storm right before we got there, and so it blew in a lot of man of war jellyfish. So there were lots at the beach. But didn't seem to affect the number of people that were there, so... But it's fine. Like, they're not... A lot of the jellyfish venom, like, it, it hurts a lot, but... Rarely is it going to cause, like, long-lasting effects. With things like box jellyfish, like, that can kill a person. Wow. But other jellyfish are not so much of a long-term problem. Petition to add box jellyfish to the game for an extra challenge. <laughs> <laughs> It'll, like, you'll just, like, pass out in the water. <laughs> so, like, the otter has to save you. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cute. Pascal comes and tries to pee on you, but it doesn't work. And then... <laughs> 
but then saves you somehow. I like this plot. I imagine that this stinging would also help with defense, right? Yeah, for the most part it does, but there are definitely a lot of things out there that eat jellyfish. Unsurprisingly, because there's like so many of them out there, there's got to be some organisms that do like to snack on them. So for one, we have our classic favorite of this podcast, the ocean sunfish. We have an episode yes. on that if anyone would like to listen. I I honestly think it's my favorite episode just because researching it, I just was, every fact I learned was surprising. So ocean sunfish will eat them. And so will things like leatherback sea turtles. They eat a ton of jellyfish. And Oh, I love that we get to bring this back because we talked about it in the Ocean Sunfish podcast, but both of them have throat teeth, which I am obsessed with. (laughs) So (laughs) the Ocean Sunfish, its throat are covered in, yeah, like teeth basically, and it helps to like rip up jellyfish and make sure that they don't come back up out of the mouth when they're trying to eat them. And in the case of leatherback sea turtles, have I got an excellent thing for you to Google. I need you to open your phones right now. Okay, this is like a little bit terrifying, just a heads up. And Google leatherback sea turtle inside of mouth or throat. And you're going to get the most alarming image, which is that sea turtle mouths are just like a whole bunch of spikes. Just absurd numbers of spikes. And that's to eat the jellyfish. Oh my god! It's crazy. Ah. It's it's so gross looking, but it's fascinating. I'm never going to sleep again. And I mean, the other like helpful thing with the sea turtles is they have very thick skin. So they don't really feel the jellyfish stings. So they can eat a whole bunch of them. But jellyfish aren't nutritionally rich, unsurprisingly. They are 95% water. So there's not a ton of nutrition in there. I feel like eating them exclusively would be like eating jello or a plastic bag full of water for every meal, but they eat many, many jellyfish every day to be able to survive. So get on those leatherback sea turtles. They are pushing through. The other thing that eats a lot of jellyfish is SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> That's just like such a fond childhood memory to me is that one episode where like he gets really into selling like jelly made from jellyfish and it's like such a sad and <laughs> crazy like oh capitalistic episode. I yeah. remember that episode. I didn't watch SpongeBob SquarePants that much, but it was like about animal abuse. Yeah. It was really <laughs> That's so dark. But also as a kid, I just thought it would be really fun to like eat a jelly sandwich with like jellyfish but they they kind of look like they could be appealing and you know what lots of people do eat them in some asian countries i'm not sure which ones off the top of my head but yeah you can like eat jellyfish i I don't know how they're prepared i just know that fact yeah i remember hearing that too so speaking of predation moon jellyfish have a crazy response to being injured it's been found that they can heal themselves as well so if they lose like a few legs They won't regenerate those legs, but they, like, reorganize their body. So they'll reorganize where their legs are and rebuild their muscular networks there. The whole point being to eventually attain that radial symmetry that I was talking about before. That that symmetry where if you cut them down the middle, no matter in which direction you go, they're going to look 
the same on both sides. And that's really important to the way they move. So they're going to try and <laughs> reorganize their whole body to do that. Even crazier, the process can take between 12 hours to four days, and it's driven by their muscular movements. So it's not like their cells notice that there's damage and they send like, you know, like humans, they'll send like white blood cells and whatever to, to fix up the damage on the body. Their muscles will just sort of like move it back into place. <laughs> like it's, it's a really weird thing. So, you know, jellyfish, are they aliens? Probably. They're just amazing at so many weird things and they don't have a brain. Wow. <sighs> yeah. Oh my God though. Sophia, are you ready for the best jellyfish fact? I like screamed when I found this out. <laughs> Hit me. Jellyfish. Oh, moon jellies have been to space. Of all the, the things we brought to space, jellyfish were among them. That's so cool. That's so fitting with the I name. Know. Sorry, I missed the pun and now I'm just letting it sink in. <laughs> <laughs> you missed the pun? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean the name? And then I was looking at the word jelly and I was like, jelly in space. <laughs> oh... Yeah, so I stumbled upon an article titled Development Studies of Aurelia Jellyfish, which developed during the SLS-1 mission. And I don't know, I just assumed that was like a submarine mission or something. But then I was like reading further into the article and it was like the polyps were exposed to microgravity for nine days aboard the space shuttle. And I was like, what? So I googled it and apparently in 1991, they wanted to test the effects of microgravity on moon jellyfish and their transition from a polyp to a medusa. So the Columbia spacecraft launched into space with over 2,000 jellyfish polyps in like little test tubes. And by the end of the mission, there were over 60,000 jellyfish orbiting the Earth. That is so cool. Can you imagine? There's not a lot of organisms that have been to space, but moon jellyfish were among them. I love that because I'm really obsessed with this connection between the ocean and space. And yeah. Like, oh, what a cool visual that is. I should probably tell you why they were in space. We weren't just like, hmm, let's, let's just bring some jellyfish to space. That'd be aesthetic. For funsies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, the reason they took jellyfish to space is, remember how I said before that jellyfish have like pockets of neurons that help jellyfish figure out where is up and where is down? kind of their orientation in the ocean. So the way that works is you have to imagine that at these spots of neurons, they have like a little pocket lined with sensory hairs on the inside, kind of like a cozy jacket lined with fur. And inside the pockets are calcium sulfate crystals, which have a bit of weight to them. So when the jellyfish is facing up, the crystals go down and trigger the hairs. So it tells the jellyfish, okay, you're facing up. And in space, that's going to be a bit different. So humans have those crystals too in our inner ear. And it's basically the same thing. The crystals trigger hairs in our ear that tell us which way we're facing. So why does this matter? Why bring 2000 jellyfish to space? Because maybe one day in the future when we want to have human space babies, it might be useful to know how well those ear crystals form in organisms that develop in space to know if those babies will know how to tell up from down. So basically the idea is, oh, if jellyfish babies are having a hard time developing crystals, we might be able to bet that humans will too. So that is a gross oversimplification probably of the research project, but that's kind of the summary of it and the overall thinking behind it. 
And in the end, they found that the crystals in the jellies formed pretty normally, but despite this, the jellyfish themselves had a hard time moving the same way as their counterparts on Earth did. So probably not a great sign for humans, but it's a really interesting project nevertheless. That's so interesting. (laughs) Wow. What a cool story. I've just been thinking a lot about that song, um, Moon Shadow, that's like, Moon shadow, moon, moon shadow, shadow, moon shadow. Yeah, but yeah. I just like substituting jelly in there. <laughs> moon shadow, <laughs> I like that. That's just been playing in my head all day waiting to record this episode. I think you should record a little bit of yourself doing it and insert it as like an end credit scene. <laughs> so if people listen to the end of the episode, they get to hear you singing moon shadow, but moon jelly. Absolutely not. Do not expect that, <laughs> listeners. No, no. Oh, I'm sad. <laughs> I, I don't know more than just like the moon shadow, moon shadow part. So I can't do it. Well, thank you so much, Olivia. That was just, that was such a great combination of like interesting science, talking about philosophy, talking about space, talking about the ocean. Yeah, I hope everyone's just like questioning everything they know right now, really. That's just what jellyfish make me feel like. Like you watch them swim and you're kind of like hypnotized by them and they're just a weird, weird animal. Yeah, I'm definitely questioning everything now. Well, Thank you everyone so much for listening and please rate and review us and don't forget to subscribe. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond Blathers where Olivia posts her beautiful episode art for each episode. So you won't want to miss the moon jelly one because it's going to be really good. I can tell. (laughs) Oh God, now I have, there's pressure. Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye.